Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Yeah, well, yes, hello everyone there in podcast land. Here on December 2nd, 2021. And I'm glad to report that I have Phil Padalo with me, uh, as I virtually always prefer to have him with me, and he is available today. So that's uh, much appreciated, Bill. Uh, good to have you on the show again. Yeah, always a pleasure to, have to be with you, Charles. Oh, excellent. So uh, as those of you who are listening today have I've already confirmed we're going to be talking about sharks eating sharks. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, institutional players going after other institutional players. This is a really interesting 2016 Southern District of New York federal case that uh, Bill and I will be talking about today. And it's a very notable case, and, and Bill's the one that really did the initial analysis on this, and he forwarded it to uh, Neil and I. But the basics of it is a U.S. bank trust, one of these huge thousands of mortgage loans trust from years ago, all part of the mortgage meltdown of 2007-2008, this trust was created back then, and it was filled with loans from UBS Real Estate Securities, Inc. And uh, there's some notable aspects to this that uh, I think they're repeating. I'm just going to read one short section from the order. This uh is very interesting because it it harkens back to a time when uh, judicial orders and judicial language was, I think, both more concise and more elegant than it is now. Uh, it also hits very, very cleanly and clearly on what a circus this all is uh, because of the way that these loan pools will put together with knowingly bad loans and not just incidentally, but uh, a huge portion of knowingly bad loans. And just the idea that most of these loans are refinanced loans, 80% in this particular huge pool, that in and of itself indicates uh, more risk, particularly when, those refinancing were based on low doc or no documentation income, based on anticipated uh, financial analyses by the mortgage brokers that the 
equity of these homes just continued to go up as it was going up in so many places back then. Uh, so here's the actual language of the order, page 7. And I believe this is posted on Neil's blog. Bill has a copy otherwise. Remarkably, the overwhelming majority of loans in the trust were for the purpose of refinancing a home already owned by the borrower rather than for the purpose of purchasing new property. And then it goes on a bit later there. Undoubtedly, many of these, the loans, were for the purpose of monetizing and extracting rising equity for other use. So this court pretty much gets the the fundamental of the scam that's been run on everybody ever since these loan pools were first created. And it's what creates the poor loan quality. And the interesting thing about this case and the reason uh, Bill unearthed it so that uh, listeners could avail of use, uh, hopefully in their own cases, defense or plaintiff, not that you would populate this into pleadings per se, but it will give you some uh, perspective and in some cases actual kind of intel on how you frame some of your discovery requests, how you frame some of your pleadings. Uh, but in any case, the, the distinct, distinctive aspect here is, yeah, you have a bad pool of loans overwhelmingly, uh, to some extent, uh, certainly overwhelmingly refinance loans, and then a huge portion of those are bad ones. Uh, what's striking here in this terms of this case is that U.S. Bank tried to unwind the deal with UBS uh, by alleging that they never even received uh, the the loans themselves. The way that these loans are delivered in these kinds of PSA agreements for securitized trusts, the way that they're delivered is they're delivered via something called mortgage files. And then those mortgage files are supposed to contain the actual original loans and associated deed of trust or mortgage, depending on whether you're in a deed of trust or mortgage state. Uh, here we're talking New York, so we're talking mortgages. And they're supposed to, if there's a refinancing, and then that's essentially the new note, so to speak, uh, that's supposed to be in there as well. So none of that happened here in terms of documentation that either side could present, which is actually quite fascinating. Um, so why don't you get into this further, Bill? I know you have some really interesting takes on this situation. Sure. No, I'd be happy to. Um, well, what really jumped out on me on this is, look, I've been reading cases of investor and trustee lawsuits, uh, repurchase demand lawsuits, totaling hundreds of billions of dollars worth of these claims for years and years and years. And what I always found is very frustrating when uh, I'm trying to peer into these and read into these uh, and how they could possibly impact homeowners facing foreclosures is they've always done a very uh, artful job, I guess you could say for better terms, of keeping the claims uh, at, at, at they're trying to keep it as defective um, quality of the loan files. So like they would make the arguments that, uh, you know, 
uh, loan-to-value percentages or the stated income and all the stuff was um, un- underwritten uh, and, and the representations and warranties were uh, were made that these were higher quality, you know, borrowers, that sort of thing. Um, and so it was very frustrating because they were very, they, they knew very well, at least uh, for the most part, not to try to leave any doors open for homeowners to get their foot in the door to try to use any of this information in these disputes in terms of uh, defending themselves in foreclosures. What jumped out on this particular case to me was it's the first time that I'd ever come across a case where U.S. Bank as trustee uh, was required to file suit for reps and warranty violations, but what they alleged in the complaint was not only were the files defective, but they didn't get the goods. They didn't get the files per typically the Section 2.1 or 2.3 in the pooling and servicing agreements where they state the loan files are, again, to include the uh, the recorded mortgage and the original notes, right? So, uh, so right there when I saw, wait a minute here, they actually made that allegation that they never got the goods. Now, why is that important or how is that possible to uh, help homeowners? Well, a number of reasons. You know, one, uh, an argument about, a, you know, does a trust exist? Well, I'm sure uh, Neil has posted and written about this for, for years now that uh, the corpus of a trust, if it's empty, if it's an empty paper bag and never got the goods, if if the notes and the collateral and the assets were not delivered and possessed by uh, a trust and it holds nothing, then you have issues as to is it really a trust? Does it exist if it doesn't hold anything? And then the other big part of this is that uh, the foreclosure uh, firms, especially in judicial states, uh, they come in saying, well, we're holding a bare paper uh, note endorsed in blank. And um, as the holder of that uh, uh, note, we're entitled to enforce it on on behalf of of these trusts. Well, um, if there was no negotiation and the things never made it to the trust, there's potential uh, arguments that can be made against uh, the UCC argument. So anyway, the, the fascinating part here, and I'm just going to uh, <laughs> read what the court came back with, um, is they said the trusts have not proved that UBS breached the mortgage file warranty. Now that's the warranty, I believe it was two point, section 2.1 of their so-called PSAs. They cite to no evidence concerning Wells Fargo's custody of the files, the final certification that Wells Fargo was obligated to issue or U.S. Bank's obligation to notify UBS of any defects in the mortgage files, nor do they cite to any evidence that UBS did not uh, provide a complete mortgage file as of the closing date. So this now goes to where we're at um, really aggressively, especially cases I'm involved in in the last year. We are attacking the fact that the trusts don't exist. Okay, that's a hard thing to prove a negative. But what we're going for is, uh, based on subpoenas, whatever it might be, discovery, first we start off with requests for admissions and interrogatories or whatnot in production. We want you to produce the existing documents and trust agreements with all these certifications, right? Uh, The one they're mentioning here in this case saying that uh, makes these allegations, um, but they don't provide any evidence, right? Well, the same thing in all the cases that I'm involved in. We make the requests, we subpoena this stuff, we motion to compel, and at the end of the day, it's never, ever produced. 
Okay, so it's a very important sequential step here when you're aggressively prosecuting these cases is that, look, here, here we have a situation where the trusts are admitting we never got, we never got anything, okay? So another thing that's important and a takeaway from this is that in this particular um, order, they talk about um, the process during the litigation in which they had thousands of files that were audited. And they have a lot of witnesses in here who went through and conducted. These are third parties, a lot of them, and that they hired outsourced to go in and, and audit these uh, so-called loan files or whatnot. And when you have a situation like this, and it's sort of like the same if you look at the Lehman bankruptcy or whatnot, where they literally submit um, claims for tens of thousands of individual mortgage loan files for auditing, and they come back saying that, you know, an X percentage, a large percentage of have all these defects, the notes didn't exist, whatever they might be. I believe, and I don't, you know, I'm sure you, you may agree with on, on this, Charles, but um, one of the things that you want to attack when you're going against somebody or some of these uh, entity named trusts, um, not only is it are we going after proof of their existence, which I don't believe they exist and they can't produce those documents. But we also want to ask in discovery for all the litigation that that particular party has been involved in to get to the bottom of how many investor suits have been filed and where do they exist. Um, and the reason why I think that's important is because ultimately you're going to find a case that um, if you're, if you're battling and defending against one of these trusts, that there's a litig there's been litigation out there somewhere where these uh, loan files have been audited, and maybe your particular loan or any of the listeners out there who may be in foreclosure, your particular loan was involved in one of these tens of thousands of audited loans. And if so, you want to know, was my loan a part of that group? Was it audited? And I'm entitled to know what the results of that audit were. That's something, uh, an area where you're going to get a lot of, a lot of pushback, but you got to know where to focus and sharpen the pencil on how to, how to attack this stuff. So, uh, going back a little bit to uh, a couple of examples, um, I have a case as where I'm working right now in the, uh, on the West Coast in Oregon, and we went after the so-called trust agreement, and we subpoenaed U.S. Bank for all their records as custodian and that, and uh, they repeatedly refused to comply with the subpoena. And uh, so now, you know, the argument, they're in contempt of court. But um, our position, my position, my opinion going into these cases now is um, these trusts never did get anything. They can't produce and refuse to produce any of the documents to show receipt of it and um, and therefore um, these entities in the title are, are fictitious and they and they don't exist and here's why so that's one area of, of attack there um, we've talked about in the past another bullet point that I want to make is that we've been going after uh, the, the receipts, the accounts receivable and the money. And we know that we get pushback, that, that that money trail, that verification of the money trail doesn't exist outside of a, uh, uh, an alleged servicer, which they're not really servicers, but they're coming back with a payment history is all, regurgitation of 
uh, those payments made each month. Uh, I was in a deposition <laughs> recently, and uh, the the counsel that was deposing me kind of went off the record and was kind of getting a little bit perturbed, I think, as to why uh, our side felt that it was so important to produce that kind of information. Because I kept saying, listen, I there's there's a lot of missing documents uh, that I don't have. I don't have the trust agreement. I don't have the power of attorney agreements. I don't have the um, the accounting uh, to to help me complete my investigation. And they were getting kind of perturbed, and they went off the record, and they're having this conversation, and uh, just, it's worth mentioning, where the foreclosure attorney said, listen, I don't know why this is so important to you. If you think you're ever going to get an, an accounting of this, it's never going to happen, not here or anywhere. And if you think that that somebody's going to provide it, I'll tell you right now, no one in the foreclosure, if, or if, how do I, I'm just paraphrasing here, but the, the, the comment was, if you expect to see something like that, you're never going to get it because it doesn't exist, number one, and if we had to produce it, if we were forced to produce that information, the whole entire foreclosure industry would come, be taken down to its knees. Okay, so, so basically I'm, 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 I'm being, it's confirming off the record what, what I've suspected and what we've been arguing for years. They don't, have, they don't have anything at the end of the day, nothing to support their claim. Uh, uh, and, and, and here in this case that we're bringing up here with U.S. Bank and UBS, this is a, this is a prime example now um, where uh, the investors and the trustees are going at it and they won't even produce it in, in a case like this with, where the stakes are tremendously high and the dollar amounts are enormous um, because I had to laugh even when I sent this over to you and Neil. I said, listen, they, they really stepped in it in here because if they did, if, if, if they make that allegation and they actually prove that no certifications were, were done and nothing was delivered, they're opening up Pandora's box and they can't foreclose. None of these trusts could ever foreclose and have the standing to go after homeowners in foreclosure cases anywhere uh, if, if this were to come out. And that's why... Uh, this is a, a really uh, interesting case to me because it's the first time again where, where um, they're admitting they never got the goods. Um, so I guess that being said, and sort of a little bit of my highlights as we talked about aggressive discovery and where we're having some success now in cases that I'm in, it's not only going after um, these trust agreements and, and at formally seeking the accounting and all of that, but we're starting to now target um, people that aren't really accustomed to being named in uh, suits by a subpoena or for deposition. And those being, and I've said this in the past, is going after the quote-unquote risk managers for these uh, so-called alleged trusts. Um, if you go in, the only thing you're going to see uh, when it comes to these trusts and the only thing that the services will point to are the PSAs. And they um, will oftentimes say, well, it's recorded with the SEC, it's public information, that gives us all the authority, so on and so forth. Well, that, again, is not a, a trust agreement. But, um, and there's arguments that can be made as to the validity of entering that into the record as admissible evidence. But um, if you look into those PSAs, you will often find in the prospectuses or PSAs uh, the name of a credit risk manager. 
And those are the parties who are supposed to have all the knowledge of, of everything, right? I, w- I would go to say that if you're looking for a PMK, the person most knowledgeable to depose, it's the risk management. It's the risk managers of these things. And, and they're supposed to have all the information. And so I think they're a prime target and a great target uh, to go after in uh, uh, discovery and subpoenas and uh, as to their knowledge of, uh, of anything, really, for that matter. Um, simply going after these debt collector agents, servicers, who call themselves servicers, um, you're getting the same regurgitated nonsense and sort of an effort and uh, futility uh, because you can predict, I can predict exactly what they're going to say each and every time. They, they don't know anything. They can't speak to anything. They have no custodial history of anything. They're simply uh, only allowed to speak to the documents that are provided to them by counsel, and they uh, uh, have their meetings with counsel just shortly before any deposition, so they're very unprepared, and, um, and oftentimes um, even though the trustees are subpoenaed under a 30B6, for example, um, the one party from that servicer will show up at representing everybody. So um, they know how to stonewall this stuff, but I think right now um, we're starting to uh, make some headway getting around that and then preparing that, um, uh, the motions to compel to go to court and say, listen, um, they, they refuse. They don't have the goods. They refuse to produce the goods. And, um, and I think it's going to be we're starting to see uh, that I believe anyway, that this is going to get a lot more traction um, from, from the courts. Charles. Uh, I agree with you on that bill. And I think part of how homeowners make that happen, whether again, they're on the defense side or the plaintiff side is go back to first principles. And, you know, as much as, as much as uh, courts have, frankly, not advanced nearly enough, you know, the first principles argument related to quiet title as a cause of action or the fundamental cause of action in a quiet title lawsuit related to these cases. And then the companion principle, whether you're pleading quiet title or not, uh, show me the note allegations where you're actually demanding that a copy of your specific mortgage note, whether it's a refinancing that ties to the note, so then you'd have the refinancing portion of the note, so to speak, or whether you're talking about, you know, an origination. The bottom line is that is still one of the best lines of attack, I would say, analytically. The fact that operationally a lot of courts have let the institutional players out without having to produce a real copy of the note or, as Neil would say, just producing a bunch of documents and information about the note but not the note itself. The fundamentals here of trust law go back to your mom and pop trust uh, in an estate planning arrangement. The rules are essentially identical. And those rules state that, going back to the point you raised previously, Bill, it's not a trust. If you have a trust, uh, whether it's an estate planning living trust or these types of 
complex corporate trust, and you don't fund the trust with the actual secured uh, entities, and here it would be literally thousands of mortgage loans in these pools oftentimes, in a regular estate planning arrangement with just a regular mom-and-pop homeowner, you would have the actual home put into the trust. But if you make the trust and you do all the designating, remember, uh, just real quickly, I won't belabor the point, but it's important to get the fundamentals out. With estate planning, you set up a revocable living trust to avoid probate. So you don't you don't get shocked and shellac with all the costs associated with that, all the delays, and all the ways that the state can essentially outmaneuver you from being able to even uh, leave your property to those who you prefer to, like your, you know, certain relatives, that type of thing. So, and those state plans. If the if the actual property that you own, if essentially certain documenting bona fides that you need to do, like literally a, a reference to the actual note that basically is equivalent to the note, that needs to be in the name of um, the revocable trust. So you have to have your title documents actually recorded showing that the legal owner of the property is not you as an individual, but the legal owner that the recorded uh, documents of title records in your county show that it's the living trust that you created. If you don't do that recording and then essentially place the recording into the trust, and of course there are mechanical legal ways you do that, if that's not done, then you don't have the property in a trust. And if you have maybe some other property in the trust, fine, that will bypass probate when you die. But if you haven't put your real estate property and the particular real estate that you most care about into the trust by recording it in the name of the trust and, again, following some other bona fides, then that property is going to go to probate and you're not going to be able to pass it on because the trust fails as to that property. And remember, with these PSAs, the mortgage loans are the only uh, entity, so to speak, a series of, of representations, documents, the actual mortgage notes. Those are the only things going into these these mega securitized trusts for mortgages. So if they're not put in in such a way where the original notes or the refinancing associated with those original notes and if there's a refinancing, if that doesn't happen, then there really isn't a trust because it's not funded with anything that has legal uh, valence, so to speak. It's not funded with no, something and I, and I, and that has legal implications. Yeah, Right, exactly. And and one another great takeaway on this thing is that these witnesses uh, talk about customary in the industry at that, what they're saying is that all these notes were digitized. The loan files were digitized uh, at or near the time of origination. And they talk about how they would send them out for digitization to third parties uh, in the systems. And that's what was being reviewed, transferred, audited, everything. It's all digital. 
Okay, and that's what we've been saying for years that they were they were systematically destroyed. There are no original notes. So not only did they not get anything here, but they're admitting that everything was digitized. And exactly, and the digitization of so many legal documents, and this is is kind of a trend throughout the legal document world. It's it's opening everything up for massive amounts of potential fraud, for potential doctoring. Um, for potential situations where you can't access the documents because for some reason the Internet is down. Um, so uh, one of the other topics we were going to get into today was about homeowners who are reluctant to defend themselves. We'll leave that for another day. Uh, I think this topic relates to that because the contrived complexity is frankly one of those reasons. Uh, I'm just going to touch really briefly on the COVID front. And I think all homeowners listening to this show uh, need to anticipate that, you know, now we're going to be dealing with COVID vaccine mandates potentially. And that, of course, is going to relate to court access. I will say that even pro-per and pro-se borrowers are getting more and more access to courts and being allowed to uh, file electronically. It's a trend here in California and some other places. So thanks again, Bill, for joining me, and uh, Neil will be back next week. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Charles. Welcome to the The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.